Hello and welcome to episode 381 of the Fat Boys Podcast, wow. sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you back in Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. That's too optimistic for you right now. They didn't win. <laughs> I would say that Sunday's sports results in particular, it was almost as if I called it the biggest day in Seattle sports history. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Storm lost. Mariners lost. Seahawks lost. Were you we cheering get... for the storm? Well, it didn't affect their draft pick, so. So you were like, I might won. as well cheer for them? Uh, they put on a good show, but could could affect their draft pick next year. You never know. So, oh, that's good. Then we were, that was a good positive. A distinct we'll see on that one. <laughs> I don't think they're planning on being on the lot in the lottery next year. Nobody's planning on being in the lottery. Mm, some teams, I think this year they would, they didn't mind. They finally kind of acknowledged that at the end of the season. Not when it mattered. In the one game that mattered, they didn't acknowledge it. Everything about sports is bad. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> that is when we last left this podcast. The Seahawks were undefeated. The Huskies were undefeated. Still undefeated. The, the Storm had a chance, had a chance at the number three spot in the lottery. The Mariners, I think, might have been in first place they in the American were in League first West. Place. That's why they the, had the hammer. One week passes. <laughs> we need like the interstitial uh-huh. one week passes. Yes, the SpongeBob. A few hours later, <laughs> here we are. The Seahawks are in last place, not only in the NFC West, in the entire NFL somehow. You're basically saying that we walked in on Sunday like Troy in Community in the Darkest Timeline? That is Seattle sports. Oh, dear. Well, you know what's not the Darkest Timeline? What's that? Fresh hops. There we go. And this week's uh, Fresh Hop beer, as again we pause our search for Seattle's best IPA, comes from our friends at Matchless Brewing in Tumwater. The Farm Harvest... I feel like we've been in Tumwater a lot. We have. Okay. CLS Farm Harvest Fresh Hop IPA. It's it's the most wonderful time of the year for hops. And you too. Our sixth <laughs> annual Fresh Hop collaboration with CLS Farms is made with over 600 pounds of fresh centennial hop cones straight from their fields to our stainless steel tanks. Look for big green floral notes, hints of lemon lime, and just a touch oh, of refreshing cucumber. A little hint. There's nothing quite like the first Fresh Hop beer of the year. Which is not ours. I love how positive that description is. (laughs) It's very positive. For hops and you too. (laughs) They don't know that it rained today. (laughs) Well, those hops definitely did not see this last weekend of Seattle sports. (laughs) Sorry, hops. already bred. I hate to break it to you. (laughs) And the Huskies won by 33 points. Uh, An unconvincing 33-point victory. You're the men's soccer. We'll get to that in a second. Oh, God. Well, despite the darkness that Tristan saw over the weekend, we do have several toes to get to. Starting with something that happened on Sunday in the aforementioned Seattle Storm game, which was Jewel Lloyd, congrats on setting a WNBA single season record for points in the extended 40-game season. Uh, she came into the final game eight points behind teammate, former teammate Brianna Stewart, who only scored nine in the New York Liberty's regular season finale. It was her first time in re- single figures since 2021 in the last game of the season. And it took Jewel Lloyd less than four minutes to get the, uh, the points that she needed to uh, 
claim this record, finished with the second highest scoring average per game in WNBA history behind only Diane Taurasi in 2006. But also, perhaps bigger news. Okay. On Saturday, officially signed a two-year contract extension with the Storm. You heard it here first on the Felton cast. There we go. That this was a possibility going I mean, you kind of said it wasn't a possibility. So. I, I, I did not think it was going to happen. Here are all takes over here. Claiming, claiming victory for this one. I was going to make a joke about the Jewel Lloyd thing, but that's fine. You didn't give me a chance to. You pivoted to the positive. Oh, what was I was going to say also congrats to Ichiro Suzuki <laughs> on breaking the MLB hits record in 2004. <laughs> A similar achievement to what Jewel Lloyd did in one of the worst seasons in Storm history. Look, it's not going to be a positive podcast. <laughs> oh dear, it's going to be one of those podcasts. Uh, I was surprised by this. I was not shocked by it. Uh, we did mention there was a distinct possibility. So the extension. Yeah, yeah. So, but good news for the Storm. We'll talk more about their off season later on in the pod as we get into the roundup. Uh, congrats. Also in order to Julio Rodriguez on becoming the second Mariners player ever to record a 30-30 season with his home run in, of course, a losing effort on Monday night. Joining Alex Rodriguez in 1996, he's the 44th player in MLB history to join the 30-30 club and just the fourth to do it at age 22 or younger. A-Rod, Mike Trout, Ronald Acuna Jr., the others. Incredible. I, I Wait, you've pivoted? No, I mean, this is, this is Julio right now. Julio no, no, is the, no, but you had oh. an anti-30-30 take that, But offline. that's fine. I, I get, no, no, that was online. We talked about that was last that? week okay. on the podcast, yes. But it, A-Rod is part of this list. Yes. But the Julio we could be positive about right now. That is the only thing in the city of Seattle that we could be positive about. Again, fresh hops. Uh, I, I guess the fresh hops. I'm Look, Tumwater, a little too far away. <laughs> Doesn't count in the city of Seattle. There ain't there ain't a single fresh hop. We are not living in the fresh hop region of Washington State. Do you understand that they are imported? We live near the fresh hop region of Washington State. So I mean, that's I guess that's correct. So you're saying we should move to Yakima <laughs> if we want a second thing to be happy about. That's it. But I was I was laying in bed. Uh, <laughs> I just like that as a start to a story. I was laying in bed with the children, and I was watching the game uh, on my phone, and Julio hit the homer, and I got up. I, I quietly was like, I have to get up for a second, and I went and found Luca, and I was like, yes! <laughs> it's one of those moments when you're just so down because you know the team is going to lose, and then Julio hits the homer. See, I wasn't down because the, I knew the team was going to lose, because I knew Julio was coming up. I know. And it I was, was like, a- I was disappointed when J.P. Crawford didn't get on. Because it's like, oh, well, now this is only going to be a two-run over. <laughs> I mean, if J.P. Crawford had gotten on, it would have been, been a three-run over. Really nice. Yeah, would have Really been, nice. Because that is, don't look now, but the Mariners' 2023 season is marked by incredible moments and huge letdowns. Shortly thereafter, just wait. Wait for the playoffs. Because I guarantee Whoa. you this is going to come. This is not going to... Well, let's let's, let's over. see first off if there are the playoffs. Well, sure. We, how about that? We, maybe wait for the, the last really, really, really pivotal season. parts of the season. Because that is what this entire season has been. Is having these incredible moments like Julio getting the 30 for 30. And then the Angels scoring three runs the next inning. And you're just like, how... Because there was a moment when he first hit that home run. I was like, are we going to need to do an emergency pod today? <laughs> 
Anytime you think that something positive might be happening, that's when you know you've lost. I've told you this. You can't let positive positivity creep in your brain. A completely fair take. I, it just was a great moment. Are the Seahawks going to win back-to-back Super Bowls? <laughs> How do we even act when that happens? Uh, is Jermaine Kirst going to be Super Bowl MVP? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you can't think those thoughts because when you think those thoughts, that's when everything goes awry. Anyway, that that moment was very exciting. And then there was such an incredible letdown by the Mariners because... <sighs> Jared Kelnick's striking out with the bases loaded. Nobody else. Oh, my God. I wanted Kelnick to have that moment so bad. Oh, man. But I could feel the strike out of my bones. You know what I mean? I I, that's what I told you. when We needed Kelnick back, but also... I, I will tell you who was not in the lineup when they won 8-0 the next night. Oh, I don't, again, I don't think that was the reason. It's because Sam Hagerty started at DH. I mean... <laughs> What is their record when Sam Hagerty starts at It's DH? one and one. They had previously <laughs> lost. 500? Not bad. <laughs> They're 98 overall. We can compare that starts. to some Ichiro seasons. Maybe oh. not 2001. I don't know how often <laughs> Ichiro started at DH. That's a great question. All right, next up in our toast. Congrats to the Everett Aqua Sox for winning the second half Northwest League title at 40 and 26. They are facing the first half winner, the Vancouver Canadians, in the best of five Northwest League playoffs, which start to, started tonight. Uh, I need to now pause so that I can go look up the uh, the score of this game, which I uh, was in progress when I was doing the notes. At Funko Field. That is correct. That's yes. what I had to add there. <laughs> That's Harry Ford and the Everett Aqua Sox. All right, they are high A now, I believe. Let's wow, see. this is complicated searching. Uh, they lost three to nothing. Mm, well, not so, even Seattle. That's 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 a little bit too far away for me. If we're not counting Tom Otter, we're not counting Everett either. So we can't take credit for the W's, but we can take credit for the L's. Everett's closer that, than Tom Water. That feels familiar. Uh, the the Aqua Sox will also be hosting Game Two on Wednesday before the series shifts to Vancouver for the final three games. If necessary, the Aqua Sox last reached the playoffs in 2018, last played in the championship series in 2016. Wow. Those sure are some playoff records of high A baseball. <laughs> uh, back then, it wasn't even high A. We're also wishing a farewell <laughs> to Luke Weaver, who was claimed off waivers by the Yankees after being designated for assignment by the Mariners. Give up four runs in four and a third innings as part of a bullpen game on Saturday. We will always have that one inning he pitched against oh, the White Sox in his Mariners debut and struck out like two or three batters. What an incredible inning that Luke Weaver had. Do you, do you Jerry DePoto waited so long for that he, he He must have been so excited during that one inning and so devastated every other inning. Oh no, it didn't, didn't go super great for Luke Weaver. Uh, such as it is. But we are welcoming back to Seattle from a city that we cannot claim, Tacoma. Luis Torrens, who was recalled from AAA with Brian O'Keefe on the paternity list, awaiting the birth of a child, and Tom Murphy's return, still TBD from injury. I love that catchers are just a bunch of guys. <laughs> you know, I, you know who's a catcher who was once a catcher who was a guy. Who is that that we remembered? Who John Marzano? Well, we remembered the late John Marzano a lot, but. Bill Hasselman is coaching third base for the oh. Angels. Oh, I saw it. So I was yeah. wondering about that. I figured oh, I, that was Bill Hasselman. I immediately went and looked it up. I mean, I've had to admit, how many I Hasselmans saw, are there? I saw there that and I was like, well, I think that's Bill Hasselman. <laughs> I, I just love that you just got a bunch of dudes hanging around, though. <laughs> that's what your catchers are. But Luis Torrens is legitimately, I would describe him as Mariner legend, Luis Torrens. For sure. And, and some of those moments that he had, I mean, I saw that literally, 
Today I learned also Luis Torrens was on the Mariners again <laughs> when he was at bat. And I was like, I, for a I second. I had read, I think, earlier in the week that he was at AAA. I had a moment of, is this a highlight from last year? <laughs> he, I feel like his facial hair is different than last Maybe year. Maybe it was. It? He was coming up and I was like, I recognize that guy, but I don't really recognize that guy. And that man's name was Luis Torrens. But the Torrens mo- had the single that clinched them the second wild card last year, right? Uh, I don't know about that. He had the single against the Yankees in like the 14-inning oh, game. Yes, that yes. that was his big moment, and that's what makes him Mariner legend, Luis Torrens. Without question, I mean that was I was thinking and of then, that game and during then the was game. the next day. That's correct. So, Luis Torrens, I I salute you for having gone through that moment and being back the next September in Seattle with a double in his first at bat. Yeah, yeah. Smoked it down the left field line. Uh, and then it just died in the outfield. It was a very strange <laughs> play. Let's see here. Luis, oh, he, he, he pitched the game that clinched <laughs> the second wild card. This is but Mariner legend Luis Torrens right here. How many amazing moments has he had as a Mariner? It's such a small snippet. Yeah. Oh, wow. It was a Can great time. Can you imagine years ago on the Pelton cast giving this much time to Luis Torrens? Abraham Toro was uh, also involved in that one, apparently. So, yeah, they locked up the number five seed in the AL playoffs with that Not win. Not only was it inconceivable that the Mariners would have the hammer on the podcast, but a long toast to Luis Torrens. All right, well, sticking with the Mariners theme, but also in our Seattle food update. There we go. It's the AU 28. <laughs> Eugenio Suarez, Good Vibes Burger of the Week at Little Woody's, which features, obviously, classic beef patty, bacon, queso blanco, guasacaca, a Venezuelan avocado sauce, tostones, fried green plantains, mango peach salsa. To celebrate National Hispanic Heritage Month, we collaborated with the starting third baseman for the Mariners and one of the top Venezuelan players in MLB. The flavors of his burger are inspired by Eugenio's hometown of Puerto Ordaz, Venezuela, Eugenio grew up on these flavors, and the ingredients are held very close to his heart. For every Good Vibes burger purchased on Monday, September 18th, we will match you and donate the same amount of burgers to Casa Latina Seattle, an organization that advances the power and well-being of Latino immigrants through employment, education, and community organizing. Let's freaking go. Also, this burger looks incredible. Sadly, you were not able to taste I it tried. and give it a review on the pod tonight. I tried my hardest, but I, I we saw... closed earlier than we realized. I saw the photo. The mango peach salsa is what pushes it over the top. The Venezuelan avocado sauce, the mango peach salsa, the tostones, yeah. queso blanco. Like, really, Gino, my, my problem always with the Little Woody's burgers is the burger patty. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, I want all of this everything that's going on here and the burger patty's fine but i think gino freaking crushed it on there you know what i had for the first time at little woody's a few weeks ago what was that the pendleton burger i've had that before because it's I excellent almost, it, onion ring it barbecue sauce yeah yeah because i almost exclusively order the burger of the week when i go to little woody's that's why i'm going there basically and it was it was seafood month not my favorite admittedly uh, okay so i decided to get to pendleton it was it was a good time all right with that we're keeping those good vibes in mind. <laughs> it's time for your favorite segment. <laughs> Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. This is a Seahawks take, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm going to preface this by saying, 
I don't necessarily believe all of this. Oh, God. Good. Those are the best hot takes. Seahawks hot takes. I was wrong. I said on the season preview podcast that there should be more than three contenders in the NFC. I was right about that. The Detroit Lions should be considered contenders. Maybe even the Packers too. But the Seattle Seahawks, the only thing they're going to be contending for is Caleb Williams. After just one game, it was clear this season is a lost cause. Pack it up, boys. It's like they're speed running the Russell Wilson experience. They had four picks in the first 60 of the draft and ignored offensive line again. Put up a mission accomplished banner with two rookie tackles and some players who wouldn't start on 31 other franchises. Wasted a pick on a running back with no burst whatsoever. Hell, they drafted as many running backs as they did offensive linemen. That's true, look it up. When they already had an entrenched starter. Kenny McIntosh is the other one. Yes, I'm, I'm aware. They completely squandered the Russell Wilson trade, taking a cornerback who makes the Jeff Okuda selection look like a steal and have him playing a scheme which hasn't been good for almost a decade. Of course, for nostalgia's sake, they had to re-sign the linebacker who was on the team the last time they were good in, what was it, 2015, 14? This time pairing him with a tandem of fifth-year not-picked-up stars and Boye Mafe who made some great play. Singular. But hey, Everyone was worried about the run defense, and that was pretty good after the first series. But sadly, it's not 1976, and stopping the run doesn't fucking matter anymore, as I've been saying. And Matthew Stafford and Sean McVay worked this Ice Age-era defense with 119 yards to Tutu Atwell and Puka Nakua, better known as wouldn't have been playing over Roma Dunze and Jalen McMillan if he had stayed here anyway. Not better. The worst part about this is that I have to admit I was wrong about Stafford too. And call him Matthew. You know I hate that. Offensive coordinator John Donovan, or um, <laughs> Shane Waldron, had no answer with a second half that registered historically in the bad way. Shockingly, I agree with the hat because running the damn ball was the only thing they could do as long as it was, as long as it was Ken Walker who was the one running it. Tyler Lockett, aged 50 years in one offseason. Now I see why he's more focused on real estate these days. Meanwhile, oh, wow. the quarterback who, if you recall, even the Cardinals didn't want to make a play for in free agency, and the Seahawks still somehow outbid against themselves to guarantee him more money than UW and Oregon will get in the first six years in the Big Ten. <laughs> Gino is an excellent quarterback when there is a perfect pocket and someone wide open. But subtract either of those, and a wide receiver streaking down the middle of the field open looks like a scramble for six yards to him. Meanwhile, the fucking Cavalry is a 41-year-old offensive lineman. By this logic, they should be claiming Michael Bennett off the waiver wire from the Washington State Lottery. <laughs> Bennett is a full four years younger and retired when COVID-19 was just a footnote in a Chinese newspaper. The only person more washed than Peters is, of course, John Schneider. The person who saw that 9-8 and eight record last year and plus six-point differential and said, let's run that back. We're one Jake Bobo away from contention. A person who has avoided criticism while making one low-value decision after another and somehow had a worse offseason than the guy who traded for Colton Wong. So guess what, John? 
You and Jerry have traded places, and that's why we're not now talking about the Seahawks at the fucking 14-minute mark of the podcast. And there ain't no Julio on this team. All they've got is a wide receiver who got one of the worst penalties I've ever seen and doesn't even have cool hair anymore. You underestimated how long we were going to talk about Louis Torrance. It was after the 14-minute mark of the podcast. Or were you trying to look that up? No, like, I just... Okay. That was in the that was in the take of Reed. Yes. How, what minute mark was it? It was about sixteen. Okay, I was pretty close. Not, not far off. I felt much more this way before I started doing the research on this game, and now you know what? In classic, first off, by the way, I mentioned this to you offline. Like, you don't need to do hot takes about the Seahawks. We have a segment for this. It's called Area of Grievance. I know, but the hot takes is our brand now. <laughs> we pivoted to take, but I'm pivoting to positivity. Oh my god! Because when I first read, I I could not listen to Pete Carroll, the Pete Carroll show, on Monday after that performance. When I first read on Twitter him saying that it was a matter of the third downs, I thought that was complete bullshit, and it turns out it was only half bullshit. Okay, because offensively, the Seahawks were not half bad on first and second down. They had an above-average EPA on first and second down. And because of those Ken Walker the third runs you mentioned, the fourth-best success rate of any team in the National Football League in Week 1 on first and second down. DVOA reflects this. They are 11th in offense. No, everything on defense is bad, and you're right about this. But we, like, look... Ben Baldwin already predicted that. Like he he saw they were worse. Well. They were worse than I thought they'd be. I agree that they were worse than I thought. Especially by the way, why Cooper is Boye Mafe catching a stray here? Like the bizarre no, thing. No, I this acknowledged his play. Is that Daryl Taylor, Boye Mafe, and Jared Reed somehow all ended up in the top ten in ESPN's pass rush win rate at either edge or defensive tackle, despite the fact that the Seahawks did not stack. Matthew Stafford. Sometimes there's glitches in the computer. You're aware of this. I also can we I just go back? Wait, you're just acknowledging this third down thing and saying that as if it's not one of the three downs. Like, but just being like they were historically bad on one of the downs. It's not like there's a hundred downs. <laughs> there's only three of them, and then Pete Carroll punts. Do you not know how football works? For Pete Carroll, there aren't four downs. There are three. Did the CX attempt a fourth down at any point in this game? I don't believe they did. I don't think so. No. Uh, well, here's the thing about third downs is there are less of them by definition than first and second downs, because not only are there twice as many, sometimes you're allowed to convert a first down before getting to third down, which is what they did on their touchdown drive. They did not have a single. Oh yeah. I I remember drive. (laughs) (laughs) I remember all of the drive they put together. There was a moment there where we were feeling optimistic about things. No, I, I will say at the beginning of the second half, I was saying to Chris, who I was with, I was like, it feels like this offense has been terrible, but actually their drives have been field goal, touchdown, field goal, miss field goal, and now we have the ball here. Right. And I was just predicting what was coming after that. That was literally to begin the second or the first time the Seahawks got the ball in the second half because everything was terrible after that. Now, the part that I sadly predicted on the season preview podcast was the optimist part of the reason for the pessimistic football outsiders projection for the Seahawks offense was, Hey, maybe not everyone on offense is going to be healthy for the entire season. And lo and behold, it took three quarters for them to lose both starting tackles to injuries. 
we still don't know exactly how severe those are to Charles Cross, who's de- who suffered a toe injury, and Abe Lucas, who's been dealing with a knee injury back to training camp. Uh, but you know, I can tell you that they signed Jason Peters. They did sign forty-one-year-old. That Jason Peters. that is how you know how the injuries are. At least, yes. Uh, to the practice squad on Tuesday. This is basically the third consecutive year that Peters has been an injury fill, and he signed with the Bears during twenty twenty-one training camp. Ended up starting fifteen games in Chicago that season. Last year, he joined the Cowboys practice squad. Uh, it was the week, I believe, the week leading up to week one rather than the week after week one. Uh, served as a backup across both tackle spots and left guard. Played 10 games, started one, and in the process became the sixth offensive lineman in NFL history to play a game at age 40 year old. There we go. I saw there was a graphic yesterday about Aaron Rodgers being the oldest player in the NFL, and the Seahawks were like, hold my beer. Hold my fresh hop you right know, there. One of those was Andrew Whitworth. So the Seahawks saw the Rams' success with Andrew Whitworth, and we're like, let's get a run it back, forty-year-old run it back. Uh, I th- anyways, th- things were very bleak there in the third quarter when it was like Abe Lucas is hurt, Charles Cross is hurt, Tyler Lockett is hurt. Yes, boom, 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 all in a row. I again, the Tyler Lockett injury came back from. The, he, was, he was evaluated for a concussion. And the two linemen. We don't necessarily know about. Um, would Tyler Lockett have a two catches for twelve yards? I mean, part of it was just there was just a lack of. They didn't run many plays, which speaks to this defensive scheme, and where I have some concerns. Some, some much more. But there were concerns. also in the second half so many three and outs. You don't have to have three and outs. They could have run plays of their own. You don't have to have three and outs. But to go back to my point about third downs, this is you. They like, make up a smaller. Take the complaint about last year and the previous year and the previous year. Oh, the Seahawks had long time of possession against them. It's all the same shit. We're doing this again and again and again. I know. I'm aware. It doesn't matter. I'm the one who said this on the preview podcast. The the players change. The defensive coordinators change. One person stays the fucking same, and the defense is never any good at the start of the season. You also were like skeptical of my, oh, they've got a lot of moving pieces with Devin Witherspoon being out for week one, Jamal Adams being out for week one. It looked like a defense that had a lot of moving pieces. I'd put it that way. But there were players that were getting picked on in the secondary who were experienced players. They're experienced players. I I was curious PFF grades for players like Jordan Love, uh, Mike Jackson. Still Julian Love. That's... Jordan Love remains the quarterback for the Packers. Julian Love. One one little recurring bet. (laughs) He will be Jordan Love to me forever. (laughs) Just call him J Love. Just just play it safe. Uh, Uh, I haven't seen the full PFF grades. Because it looked pretty brutal, at least seeing it in front of me for those players. Rick Wollen was the only one who... Rick Wollen definitely had the best PFF grade on defense. I I think actually Bob Condota may have tweeted these. If you... If you could isolate players in the secondary who were near plays that happened when you're just like, oh, how did he not do that? Julian Love definitely did not look great out there. Same same with Mike Jackson. Same with Trey Brown, especially, who I think was benched during the game. Well, they were rotating him and Mike Jackson. That was the plan all along. Okay. And he ended up, did his play, I believe, about 70% of snaps. Trey Brown did? Yes. Interesting. So, I don't, I don't think he was you know, benched due to performance whatsoever, I would say. Do you have any other positives to say about this game? Uh, Do I have any other positives to say about this game? Geno Smith was healthy. (laughs) I I think that 
Okay, you're the, the coverage grades from PFF specifically. Okay, let's see. Tariq Woolen was number one at 65. Julian was Love was last at 32.5. The other person you did not mention getting picked on, Kobe Bryant at 36. So that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch. With Devin Witherspoon returning to practice with the intent to play, according to Pete Carroll, do they play him inside and take Kobe Bryant off the field, or do they put him in that left cornerback next? I think they have to play him inside. And he he might be more helpful as far as tackling goes if he's playing inside as well. It seems I look I I don't know anything about NFL quarterback play. It's, it should be pretty obvious to the listener by that point. It seems likely to me it's easier to pick up the nickel corner spot than it is the boundary corner spot. They need Devin Witherspoon right now, and he has to be good right away, which I think is a semi fair expectation for the fifth pick in the draft. It's not an unfair expectation. It's not like we're talking about, I mean, like where Reek Woolen was drafted. I like, by the way, how quickly you pivoted from on the preview pod, complaining about people writing off Devin Witherspoon during preseason of his first uh, NFL season. And then when he doesn't play, I'm just joking joking for the day. I know. I love Devin Witherspoon, but he better be really fucking good. Uh, so the defense on third down was extremely horrible. Third and fourth down combined, they were 32nd out of 32 in EPA per play. The Rams had a 79% success rate on those plays. No other NFL team was better than 67%. But here's where Pete Carroll is half bullshit because they were bad on first and second down too. They were 24th on those those two plays in terms of EPA per play. Wow, Pete Carroll's bullshit, huh? I Shocked. will say... Th- but the... Okay, what were, you, what were you say? Like the fear that I talked about on the preview pod was that the Seahawks would overcompensate to make up for their weak run defense last year, and that really didn't seem to be the case. Like the Rams, there were a lot of linebackers on the field at some points. The, at, at some point, yes, had, had three middle linebackers on a handful of snaps. But first and second down, Stafford was he was fine, sixteen of twenty six for two hundred and twelve yards, eight point two yards per attempt. He was on those third downs. It's still pretty freaking his, good. It's still pretty good, but I mean, it's now let me tell you about his third and fourth yards where he was eight of 12 for 122 yards and 10.2 yards per attempt. No, that's, that's devastating. That's and that doesn't the include the penalties as well. Right. So, I mean, the. Yeah, I mean, the, the third down where it appeared that they had a stop had gotten off the field to keep it a six point game, I think, at that, or, or was it a four point game? It was, already, it was only. I think it was the Seahawks were down four. Yeah. Okay. And a field goal would have made it a seven point game. Yeah. But. The that was Trey Brown, right? Yes. That penalty, the hands to the face penalty. That that one was very devastating. That was on third down. That that doesn't count in here. The only I could see that basically, if you were to take two of the best people in the entire world, as far as a quarterback and a coach, who are going to pick apart this defense when the defense was still getting together early in the season, it would be Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford. I mean, one of the things worth remembering, it'll be interesting to see how Matthew Stafford performs this season. Obviously, I was higher on him you know, through the Super Bowl win than the, you, and, you and Ben were. The anticipation is that this team is going to wear down over time. They might be a good team, but like seeing Aaron Donald and how much attention Aaron Donald takes, even just like on defense watching just Aaron Donald on plays, he's being double teamed or he's in the backfield. There are a lot of players like that. They're not... There are no. I think people have underrated Aaron Donald because we we've grown bored of him, and he was hurt at the end of last season. 
But like, I don't know if we've underrated Aaron Donald as much as questioned how much impact one player can have on defense. One player can have that much impact on defense when he's Aaron Donald. I will say, I think the Rams secondary played much better than expected. They had or, a very good game plan against the Seahawks, similar to what they did in the Russell Wilson that, era. That that's the other question Russell is, Wilson. do you think that they just let the Seahawks run the ball? Like the Ken Walker plays, he had a lot of space on some of those runs. Let not, the Seahawks, not let them, but they were like, we can give this up because we know the stupid team will do this. But they didn't even really run that much. No. You know, the Seahawks probably should have run more in this game. I think they're... Uh, they were about average in terms of situation neutral pass rate. But if they were looking at taking away, they wanted to stop the pass in this game. Be like, Aaron Donald's going to handle everything else. It worked, and I just, I don't know if, obviously you take Kyle Shanahan and you take Sean McVay as far as the coaches who are going you know, to... the Seahawks have never played against Mike McDaniel. Well, good luck. Mike McDaniel's offense looked pretty damn good the other day. But what I was going to say with Stafford is... It's a different offense that Mike McDaniel runs. But maybe against the Seahawks, he'd run the same one. You think about, yeah, I mean, it's much more explosive. I agree with that. You think about the quarterback's who have historically torched the Seahawks defense, like Phil Rivers, uh, various backups for the mm -hmm. Eagles. Josh McCown. Josh McCown repeatedly. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's what comes to mind. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, Matthew Stafford has kind of aged his way into that group. Yeah, I, no, like. I, th I, th I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Although he was out there scrambling a little bit too. So. Oh, when he ran. I just... The thing that Matthew Stafford does and is capable of doing, the Seahawks defense is worse at. He he and Sean McVay are a very good match for each other when he's not making terrible plays and being pressured. And I think that's where, when you get to Stafford, you can hit him, make him throw the ball with his left hand and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's when it changes. But they didn't touch it. And so if you don't actually, no matter what the numbers might say, if you don't actually pressure Matthew Stafford and he has time to make these passes, he's going to pick you apart. Like... I thought this team was better than that. I thought this offense was better than that. My expectation was that they would give up some... Being there at the game, I was like, they're going to give up some points, yeah, cause the, but they're just going to keep scoring. Still, I mean, obviously, Cooper Cup injury was big, but they've still got some pieces there, and they've still got Sean McVay. And like overall, they averaged 5.5 yards per play because the Seahawks' pass defense or rush defense was good. This game was really lost offensively the Seahawks not being able to take advantage of this very exactly. inexperienced Rams But defense. think about last year when the defense was bad and every year of Russell Wilson's late career when the defense was bad. The offense had to go and go and go and go yeah. to make up for it. And when you don't for even a short period of time, which it wasn't, I mean, when you look at it drives-wise, it wasn't... they only had four drives in the second half. And some of those, they were so far behind the ball, be it like behind the ball that they were in a little bit of desperation time. And then had lost their two starting tackles. And lost their two starting I, tackles, had their wide receiver make a stupid penalty. I would say, if you're saying, like, the biggest weaknesses on the team, backup tackle is probably the single biggest position. Well, weakness. I've got some bad news for you. I'm, I'm aware. Well, Jason Peters is here for a reason. We, we know. So... People still think Stone Forsyth is good because he happened to be like the second highest Seahawks draft pick in 2021, but that's because they only had two draft picks. But his name is Stone. I look. I you could be perfectly effective and be named Stone. The but you they have to score on almost not almost they have to kind of score on almost every drive if the defense is going to be that bad. 
And they have to score touchdowns sometimes too. And they did neither of those things. They kicked field goals. They scored or had scoring opportunities three times, four times in the first half. Three of them, they kicked field goals. Two, they hit one they missed. When they, when they had to kick the field goal on the drive after they blocked the Rams field goal and kicked the field goal and missed it, it was pretty devastating in that situation. If they score a touchdown there, we're probably talking about a different game. Yeah. And... They just didn't. They stalled out in really important moments. They didn't score touchdowns. They kicked field goals when they needed to score touchdowns. And that was it. That was the end of the game because of how good that Rams offense was in the second half. And the Seahawks couldn't keep up. It was one three and out, boom, score for the Rams. One three and out, boom. We know it was a game where they did score that many points. <sighs> in Detroit last year? At that Detroit shit last was year. like a billion years ago. Well, <laughs> you know how long ago it was. <laughs> you know who really led the offense much more than I remembered in this game? Who who was that? Chris Carson? It wasn't that long ago. Chris okay. Carson had already retired. By Not that Chris point. Carson. Rashad Penny. Yeah, Rashad Penny. Had 17 carries for 151 yards and two touchdowns. Holy scratch in week one. A shocking development in Philadelphia. We'll see if he gets an opportunity with Kenneth Gainwell now on the uh, injury report. Uh, DK Metcalf had seven catches and 10 targets for 149 yards. And the Seahawks, like, Outscore. Didn't TJ Hawkinson also have like a monster catch in that game? Yeah. It really was a long time ago. Not, a monster, not just a monster catch. He had eight catches for 179 yards and two touchdowns wow. in that one before being traded to the Vikings midseason. And it ended up being the most important game of the season because that was the tiebreaker the Seahawks won on the Lions, over the Lions that meant the Lions were playing just for pride and for the Seahawks on Sunday Night Football in Lambeau Field on the final uh, night of the NFL season, uh, one we will not forget, even though it didn't really end up meaning anything in the end. I still can't believe that the Seahawks are 11th in DVOA on offense. Yeah. A DVOA might be broken this year. Anyway. We'll have to continue to monitor the situation. They're not that much lower than that in EPA per play, though. So that was emblematic of the Lions' season's they were 7th in offensive DVOA, but their defense, which was ranked 27th, kept them out of the playoffs on that tiebreaker. Through one game this season, they are 6th and 24th. We'll talk some more about the context for that. But you want to talk about a marriage. You talked about the marriage of Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford. Well, how about the marriage of Jared Goff and Dan Campbell, as well as their offensive coordinator, Ben Johnson. Jared Goff, dealing, has not thrown an interception since last November 6th against Green Bay, a stretch of 10-plus games and 359 passes that he's now the third longest in NFL history. The record is 402 by Aaron Rodgers, while Tom Brady had a stretch of 399 passes without an interception that ended against the Seahawks last year in Munich at the hands of, of course, noted interceptor yes. Cody Barton. Uh you look at Goff's entire career in Detroit, a 1.3% interception rate. He was under 2% in 2021, even before this streak. So it's not completely out of nowhere. Although, as he acknowledged talking about it earlier today, there's always going to be some luck in any streak like that. Goff's completion percentage is down a little bit the last two seasons from 2020 and 21, but his yards per completion has bounced back after going under 10 yards per completion his first year in Detroit, which ranked 30th of 31 qualifying quarterbacks that season, ahead of only Ben Roethlisberger. He finished 10th in EPA plus CPOE composite last year, almost entirely the strength of his EPA per play, which ranked 7th. Jared Goff's a good quarterback. 
And so you're, you're basically you're saying that EPA, he was very good. The completion percentage overexpected. Has never been any good. He's he, the anti-Russell Wilson in that regard. Who, by the way, amazing CPOA for Russell Wilson. Was in week he? One. I see. I didn't see any of that, and I was so bummed about it because I was like, I, I could again, I could feel it in my bones that Russell was going to be good this year. I was confused because I watched like I had it on Red Sound while I was on Press Row. Because uh, I couldn't stream the Seahawks game, and it was like the uh, both offenses were moving it up and down in the field. I was like, "Oh, this game's going to be a shootout," and then it finished seventeen sixty. They just I was didn't like, what score happened? touchdowns. It's very strange. But Ru- Russ ended up having a pretty good game overall. He had a, he had a great CPOE game and an okay EPA game, I would say. So, but so Jared Goff is a little bit of a fair weather quarterback. He is very good in ideal situations. He's not necessarily making amazing passes or something like that, squeezing the ball in. Correct. He plays well in structure, really takes advantage of when you're, you know, able to use play action, uh, which you always are able to use. It doesn't Does depend he on the almost any success. play action, by the way. I don't know. I didn't watch half of this game. I was at the Storm game. I just told you that. But is there is there a stat that you can look that up? It felt like they used almost no play action in the game. There probably is somewhere. Um it's going to take a while for me. In, to look anyway, this up. let's talk about this game first. Hold on, I got to I got to look at the uh, Russell Wilson stat line though. Let's see. Russ finished 27 of 34 for 177 yards, so 5.2 yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, no interceptions. Yeah, a lot of a lot of underneath stuff as it turns out. Uh the Lions traded down to draft Jameer Gibbs at number 12 overall, also then subsequently traded starting running back DeAndre Swift to Philadelphia after previously letting goal line back Jamal Williams leave in free agency. They also added veteran David Montgomery from Chicago, and he got the bulk of the work on Thursday with Gibbs getting seven carries and two targets and 19 snaps. Dan Campbell said he wanted the rookies to get a feel for the NFL game, and Gibbs will get more touches going forward. He looked good in those few snaps. As yeah. somebody who has him in fantasy, seven for 42 yards. He, he looked very, very fast. It was similar to watching Brees Hall on Monday night, where maybe not quite as explosive as that, but you were like, this person is moving. Again, we talk about how like running running back value i'm trying to think of how we describe this uh running back value is primarily derived from offensive line running back results are primarily derived from offensive line yes but jameer gibbs in this situation looked like somebody who was moving similar to how ken walker looked also ken walker and zach charbonnet did not look like the same type of running back to me in that game and we could talk about long-term their value, but like in that situation, Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery, I think had a good game also, but Jameer Gibbs looked way more explosive than David Montgomery did. I mean, not surprising. David Montgomery did score a touchdown in that one. Uh, let's see here. I'm scrolling down. Geno Smith did not, was not recorded with a play action attempt on Sunday. Woof. That was not the good offense. But, but the thing is they kept waiting. That's, that's the problem with Pete Carroll and maybe subsequently Shane Waldron. Cause I don't think Pete Carroll's in his ear being like, don't do play action right now. They did the fucking NFL coach thing where they were like, we have to do this. Then we can do that. But they did run well in this time, this situation. I, so I don't know. Maybe they just didn't that's have the uh, issue. And, but they just didn't do it. They felt like if they weren't in a plus situation that they couldn't run play action. Now, one rookie who did get a, a huge workload against the Chiefs was second-round pick tight end Sam Laporta, who had five catches in as many targets for 39 yards. He's the replacement for Hawkinson after he was traded to the Vikings. Amon Ross St. Brown went, had six catches and nine targets for 71 yards and a touchdown, similar to his averages as a pro bowler last year, and Josh Reynolds had four catches and seven targets for 80 yards. 
Uh, the Lions are dealing with their own tackle injury. Taylor Decker, who started all 17 games last season, played through an ankle injury in the opener, missed practice on Tuesday. If he's unable to play, Pro Bowl right tackle slash quarterback Pine Sewell will likely move over to <laughs> left tackle. Wait, why is he slash quarterback? Because he converted a huge third down last year. Or, uh, you don't remember that? I don't remember that now. Oh, it was a great time. A great moment. One of one for nine yards, I believe. Uh, we mentioned that the defense kept the Lions out of the playoffs last year. They held the Chiefs to 20 points and got a 50-yard pick six from another second-round pick, Brandon Branch, in his NFL debut, but did not sack Patrick Mahomes and obviously benefited from a series of Kadarius Tony drops. And just wide receiver mishaps in general for the Chiefs. Yeah, with Travis Kelsey out. So their, their DVOA was not very strong defensively, even although that's without an opponent adjustment. So they'll benefit a little bit from that. I'm I'm very fascinated to see if the Seahawks offense rebounds after that game. I think I think this is every every week is going to be important at the beginning of the year. If this is another shootout, they're able to play offense the way that we think that this team can. Again, I'm partially joking about how down I am about the team. If they lose this game and they lose this game badly, if the defense gets broken and the offense is good statistically but doesn't score any points, we might be talking about a very long season here because the schedule's not that easy. You no, know, they we talked about it you know, in the preview, they, or I guess we, I don't know if we did keep that in the preview because it was kind of what Ben and I were talking about when you took a call. Uh, the, this, the back half of the schedule is rough, so they need to be good going into the bye. Well, and especially beating, playing the Rams at home, that is one of those games that you have to chalk up as a victory. I mean, we talked about, you know, the, the optimistic case for the Seahawks is, oh, they're in a division where two of the teams, you know, we don't expect to be competitive. Well, guess what? They already got one loss to, to those teams. So you have to beat yourself? <laughs> <sighs> but, but if this is a situation where the offense is... The offense has to be excellent in this game, I think, to really reframe the season. And the defense has to play quite a bit better. This is one of those games that they have to look significantly better than they did in week one against a pretty good team. I mean, they obviously came off beating the Chiefs. There was some luck involved with that. I think the Lions are almost exactly what they were last year. And the hope is that the Seahawks are closer to what they were last year, which the stats tell us they are. And that if it is like the Seahawks last year, that that is still better than the Lions because it was in week three, but I don't know if that's actually the case by the end of the season. I, I think that is a very fair assessment. And I think the Seahawks in general have lost seven of their last 10 games dating back to uh, playing the Buccaneers in Germany. And right now, I think it is difficult to remember the last time that the Seahawks played well in a full football game. And they've done some things well, but they need to have a game where we look at it and we say, similar to what we were feeling in early in the season, right? Yeah. And some of those victories where they I mean, did the, have dominant The Lions victory. game was one of those games. Like, we didn't necessarily know how good the Lions were yet at that point, but still. What was the good win? The Chargers last year? Did they beat the Chargers? I think they beat the Chargers. They did beat and we the were Chargers like, that LA, was, yes. they looked good. And I think that was the last time that we looked at the Seahawks and we said, wow, that team looks really good. So... There definitely was a lot of getting by by happening to make the playoffs at 9-8 and eight because of schedule or whatever. By playing pretty well at the beginning of the season and fading late. And they have to do something positive again. They kind of dominated the Giants. That was a pretty good win. Also previous to that 3-7 and seven stretch, though. 
in that three and seven stretch, they beat they beat the crap out of the Jets, but that that it wasn't really that meaningful. So no, I I wouldn't say that there's any of those that you look back afterwards and like with some brutal really losses in there, right? That Raiders loss was a brutal loss. Uh, the Carolina, Panthers loss was a brutal loss. I was I I finally got around to watching quarterback and uh, was reminded of the Seahawks going zero and four against the NFC South last year. Oh my god, who buddy? Still waiting for that Marcus Mariota breakout. Season. Oh, sorry, week four. I said week three. Week four of last year. Yeah. I didn't realize that Falcon. I mean, we went into that Falcons game. I mean, that's why we needed that Lions win because at that point you were like, I, I was thinking that my preseason. Oh, I was out. That the beating the Broncos would be the high point of the season. It was going to all be downhill from there. Was feeling very. I accurate. was barely paying attention to the NFL in general, not to to the Seahawks in general at that point because I was like, I'm I cannot watch this. It is so brutal. After being at that Falcons game, was just a heinous experience. So, I mean, you hope that week two that that magic comes earlier. I think this is probably going to be a high-scoring game, but obviously in a high-scoring game, you would look at the Lions, who probably have better quarterback play, probably have better receiver play, who probably have more explosive running back play. Maybe they have some offensive line injuries. Well, guess what? The Seahawks do too, and they're at home. And they have Aiden Hutchinson on the other side. Yeah, we didn't talk about Hutchinson at all. Who, who is a more disruptive defensive player than anybody on the Seahawks. And I don't know how you could view this as anything, but the Lions should be pretty heavy favorites. Well, what are you going to say in terms of chances of victory here? I think it's like a 28% chance oh. of victory. Uh, uh, this is, uh, I'm at like 40%. It's a little lower than FBI. But or a little higher than FBI, I should say. I think it would maybe be like forty-five percent of the Seahawks were at home. I think uh, that's maybe even like a home. I think home. it would be like fifty-fifty if they were at home. This team just isn't very good. They haven't done anything in a long time to prove to me that they're a good team. What are we basing that off of? I mean, honestly, like, what are we basing that off of? It's so funny how different this conversation is than last week. <laughs> I get it that statistically the team looked pretty good by the end of the season and the offense looked pretty good right. by the I end mean, of the season. Were, you know, just outside the top 10 in DVOA. But also, it was a long time. Like those, we talked about those, those games. Those early games aren't necessarily less predictive than games later in the season, is what I would tell you. I, I agree. It's just that they have, since week whatever last year, since the bye week last year, the Lions have been in one direction and the Seahawks have been in another direction. That is not inaccurate. What? Oh, you're you're at forty percent. Yeah. Who do we get to talk about next? The rundown. When do you want to do the Mariners? I want to do the Mariners right before the the second to last. Oh. We'll give them the penultimate because they're in the wild card. Because there's a, uh, yes, although they are not second in the AL West anymore. All right. Well, let's get into the roundup. Starting with the Sounders, who are coming off the international break, they still sit second in the West because LAFC lost two nothing. And Portland now has just one match in hand. Uh, still enjoyed this quote from Brian Schmetzer on Tuesday via Sounder at heart. I'll go on record saying it's a little false. We're in second with six games to go. That's positive. That's glass half full. That's the Pollyanna viewpoint. The reality is we have to take care of business. We have four on the road and two at home. That's reality. We have to work hard in training, work hard in games to steal some points in this three-game stretch and close out with a couple of good games at home. That starts Saturday night at FC Dallas, which is only the ninth and final playoff spot in the West. Heat could be an issue for the Sounders. The forecast calls for a high of 88 on Saturday in Frisco, Texas, with temps still in the 80s through game time. Uh, Christian Roulan expected to travel with the Sounders to this one. We'll see if he returns to play yet. 
you know, Schmetzer said he's optimistic, encouraged by his progress, but still wants to make sure that he's completely healthy before he's back on the field. Which what is, is the, the right Pollyanna approach. viewpoint? I am not familiar with this as a term. Pollyanna? Mm-hmm. I don't know where the derivation of that is, but that's, that's like a term for like positive. Yeah. We're going to do some Feldenkast etymology here. I, I literally just had, had not. It, it tripped you clearly an excessively cheerful, optimistic person. Not you today. Oh, well, rain suffered their eighth consecutive loss in a semifinal knockout stage. Ah, Typically the start of knockout play in the NWSL Challenge Cup or in the playoffs, although that would not be the case this year with them expanding to six games. Uh, on Wednesday, losing one nothing to Racing Louisville with the potential for three games in seven days. Had they advanced to the NWSL Challenge Cup final, they decided to rotate their lineup for the semifinal. Uh, started just one of the Olympians with no subs before the 66th minute. Just Fishlock and Megan Rapino came on in the 77th minute with the rain looking to get the tie in goal. And they had 16 shots as a team, but just two of them on goal. With that in the books, the focus now returns to the NWSL regular season, beginning with a derby at Portland on Saturday night. The Thorns sit second in the NWSL table, two points up on the rain by virtue of two more draws, two fewer losses. Uh, also, one bit of oil rain news this week, they announced that they have picked up their 2024 option on Fishlock's contract, ensuring the reigning NWSL MVP will stay in Seattle. Seattle Storm, as we mentioned, will enter the lottery in the number four spot, which means they have they will go into that drawing, which uh, will be held at some point, presumably in November, during an a uh, key non-conference college game on okay. ESPN. In a college game? Yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, it makes sense. Those are the players you're drafting. Uh, in, in the NBA, they'll do it during halftime of the G League. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have a 10% chance at the number one pick, a 14.5% chance at the number two pick. Is the fourth seed, they cannot get the third pick. What? Because by definition... You know, only two, they only draw for the two top two spots. So, by definition, whichever team doesn't get the one of those, if they don't, will be ahead of them. Interesting. Okay. So, they, they are most likely 75% to finish with the fourth pick. That's, that's actually the bigger difference in the chances of one and two between being the third and the fourth seed going into the lottery is that there you are very likely to pick third, obviously. Yeah. But the Los Angeles Sparks will hold that spot. The Indiana Fever, last year's number one pick, Aaliyah Boston, have the best odds. Number two is Phoenix. So let me ask you, as, as the season, the season is over now, right, for the Storm? It is over, yes. Okay. Uh, had they lost to the LA Sparks, this was about two weeks ago, right? It ultimately would not have determined. It wouldn't this. have mattered. So Chicago won on their last two games of the regular season. So L.A. ended up finishing a game behind, and Chicago had the tiebreaker. Do you think, so L.A. is in that third slot? Yes. Were they a game or two away from that? Like, would they have made it so that that was the case either way? They could never have caught L.A. No, the difference, because it's a two-year record, the difference in their 2022 records was much too large. Now, the one thing is... It could work for the storms in the storms' favor if they're not a playoff team in 2024, because the only team that had a worse record than them this season is Phoenix, who does not have their control of their draft pick in 2024. They've already traded a swap to New York. Of all wow, teams. I would just never in a situation when there's only four lottery teams ever trade a draft pick. Basically, in the future, it's it's a pretty bad strategy, uh, especially because it seems like 
the players who are coming out of college almost every year there's somebody who's a franchise changing player there hasn't been for well i guess right between you in, told me there was a player like last year up until ryan howard who was has been an all-star for the first two seasons and then Aliyah boston this year Aliyah boston yeah yeah there hadn't been for a while i would say like the storm briefly held the number one pick in 2020 the player that ended up getting drafted uh charlie collier out of the league that's in her fourth season and basically no one in that draft has really proven all that value. So this is a more recent trend. It's not necessarily a more recent trend. What I will say is, like, because of the fact that there's early entry in the NBA, you know, players can kind of slot around, so there's not as big ups and downs. And there's also 30 teams, so the differences between, you know, the players aren't as pronounced as they are in a 12-team league. Yes. So... So, so we'll see what the 2024 draft looks like, as we've talked about repeatedly. All of the top players in this year's draft have the option to go back. Let's say that almost everybody comes out. Who are who? Who would be the top four players, assuming every single player came out? If everyone who is eligible for the draft is in it, I would rank them Caitlin Clark, Paige Beckers, Cameron Brink, Angel Reese. So Angel Reese could be the fourth pick. Hypothetically. That would be shocking to me. I think Paige Beckers is pretty unlikely to come, to out. come out because she's only played two seasons and one full se- healthy season. Who's next after that? Who's the fifth best player? I probably should know this, but not off the top of my head. Uh, Bad news for the Storm? Not necessarily. I, I, you know, there's also a full season to go. Things, things can shift. A full college season to go? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So... Uh, their top storms, top seven players are now under contract for next year in terms of minutes played with that Jewel Lloyd extension, along with rookie point guard Jade Melbourne. They have three free agents. Gabby Williams, who likely won't be able to play in 2024, she reiterated due to prioritization, but did she say she plans to be back in the WNBA in 2025 uh, after the representing France in the Paris Olympics. And then backup point guard Yvonne Turner, who mostly played the leadership role this year. And then reserve forward Joyner Holmes is a restricted free agent. But basically the whole core is going to be back if the Storm want it. And they have enough cap space to make a max offer this offseason. Who's out there this offseason? Now, one of the things we also saw is a number of the other free agents besides Jewel Lloyd signed extensions. Kalia Copper did on Sunday uh, with the Chicago Sky. Kayla McBride with the Minnesota Lynx. So the guard talent in particular, the perimeter talent, has kind of dried up. Uh, technically, Brianna Stewart is out there. Don't, don't think she's coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Neko Gumake okay. is a potential free agent. She's played her entire career with the Sparks. Her, her sister, Shanae, plays with her in L.A., is there any reason to think that it'll, let's say that she was on the market, Storm had max money. Is there any reason that she would sign with Storm versus staying in LA? Practice facility, I suppose. <laughs> I don't th- I don't think she's likely to go anywhere. I mean, the player, the single player that's going to be most interesting to watch in free agency is Skylar Diggins-Smith, who sat out this entire season uh, after giving birth. Uh Diana Taurasi was asked about the possibility of playing with Diggins Smith again this season, next season, and no commented in it at the uh, Phoenix exit interviews. Why? I feel like I feel like you're implying something that I don't know. Uh, her relationship with the organization seemed seemed to deteriorate. Okay. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. She again unrestricted free agent. How and good was Skylar Diggins Smith prior to missing a season? I think she made All WNBA First Team in in 2022. Okay, so that'd be huge. Uh, and 
both Noel Quinn and Jewel Lloyd asked about, you know, biggest needs for the Storm, immediately said a true point guard. Sammy Whitcomb, they had good results when she played there in the second half of the season, but that's not her natural position. No, definitely not. I do worry a little bit because Jordan Horston settled in. Uh, she's likely to make the all-rookie team. She's played well at starting small forward after Gabby Williams was injured. You've got Jewel Lloyd. You have Kia Nurses under contract for next year, played better at the end of the season. If Sammy's in the mix at wing, that's a lot of players there. So maybe she plays some at point guard. That's what Noel Quinn seemed to indicate, but isn't the starter there. So we'll see. And they kind of, one of the interesting things about free agency in the WNBA is because of the fact that it takes place way before the draft, and you don't know which of these players are going to enter. They kind of got to fill their needs in free agency and then, you know, figure out who the best player is available. It takes place even before you know who's going to enter the draft. Yeah, because you don't have to decide whether to enter the draft until after the college season. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So things aren't necessarily extremely bleak for the storm right now. No. That comes mildly bleak. You can't tell me that it's not. It's it's bleaker than it could have been. If... If you end up being the second worst team in the league and only getting the fourth pick in the draft out of it, you know, that's kind of a disappointment if they are good enough to make the playoffs next year and this year's record doesn't matter. So. If they make the playoffs, they ha- they cannot be in the lottery. Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. So the lottery is the four teams who missed the playoffs this current season. Correct. But your order is determined by two-year record. Correct. So you can't be in the playoffs. You can't be epically bad. So that's why it mattered whether Chicago and L.A. were in the playoffs this year. I see. Well, they better not make the playoffs next year. Or, I mean, depending on how things shake out. There, there's there's a long way to go. Not that many sign. teams miss the playoffs, though. You kind of, in a year that you miss the playoffs, have to really capitalize on it. And look, they haven't missed the playoffs since they drafted Brianna Stewart number one overall. They haven't had a pick anywhere near this. So this is a this is a big opportunity for them, and then they've got the cap space, and now they have a n- bunch of players on rookie contracts, which is something they didn't really have before. Okay. So, well, I, I, they, the other thing they have for this year specifically is, Essie Magbagor signed a two-year contract when she could only negotiate with the Storm. The Storm ended up giving her a lot more than the minimum this season so that she's making much less than she would have if she were a restricted free agent this offseason, which she would probably be maxed out. Okay. And there's still a 25% chance of getting the first or second pick. That's Correct. not a tiny percentage. Yeah. So, we'll see. All right, quickly on UW men's soccer. They were part of the rough Sunday in Seattle sports as they drew 1-1 at home with Cal State Fullerton ahead of the start of conference play this weekend in the Bay, falling out of the top 25. That road trip to the Bay Area won't quit a matchup Thursday night at number one, Stanford. So a second chance for the Huskies to take down a top five team this year. Although uh, I believe Indiana then subsequently lost a second time. They've fallen to, into the 20s. Are we checking on volleyball? Are we watching UW volleyball? We're keeping an eye on them. Okay. where Are they ranked right now? Uh, I don't know if they're ranked. Because no. I did see on ESPN earlier today, I love the hype around Nebraska volleyball. I will say, but let's keep them in the Big Ten. That's it. They can stay. <laughs> Good. As a volleyball school. Uh, how now, generous. And once we're in, they could stay. Uh, but I love seeing on ESPN Nebraska versus Stanford volleyball as kind of like a highlighted event in primetime. I think it's pretty cool to see. 
Oh, is it? Interesting. That is cool. That was on earlier today. And uh, I'm pretty sure Nebraska won. And I really feel that with my Big Ten pride. <laughs> UW is 26th in the rankings. They're the top other receiving votes. I don't think they've really played anyone exciting yet in volleyball, so not much of a chance to move up. Nebraska's ranked number four. Wait, look at the Big Ten represented there, by the way. Yeah, Wisconsin. And why well, didn't know Wisconsin was a, a volleyball power. Number Oregon one, at number, number seven. four. Minnesota at number nine. What? Oh, yeah, you had Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Purdue at 17, Ohio State at 19. Iowa, I don't know. They're, they're not, that's, that's the wrong Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> not that Iowa. We don't get that one. Washington State at number 11. We definitely do not get. The yeah. Pac-2 gets that. All right. You wanted to do the Mariners is the penultimate here. Uh, they won a game which was nice. It snapped a four-game losing streak on Tuesday night. They are now a game and a half back of the Astros in the AL West, a half game back of the Rangers for the second wild card and tied with the Toronto Blue Jays for the third wild card, which may raise a question to you. How the hell did they break a tie? What are the tiebreakers looking like for the Mariners? Yeah. Uh, the tiebreaker versus the Blue Jays will be determined by the team's in-division records against their respective divisions, okay. which is good news if you play a bunch of games against the A's <laughs> in your division. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the Angels, too. <laughs> well, not on Monday night. Uh, not, and not good for the Astros against the A's, weirdly. The Mariners are 13-18 and 18 so far against the AL West. They have a lot of in-division games left. The Blue Jays are 12-25 and 25 against the AL East. Wow! I mean, the AL East is really good. I get that. There's two teams ahead of them. I guess both teams have two teams ahead of them in division. They're yes. kind of just both in really hard divisions. But again, the bottom of the AL East yes. is the Yankees and the Red Sox. Okay. As opposed to the that, A's I and mean, the Astros. That is very good news that Angels. I hope that we do not have to consider. And I also mean, can change know. pretty wildly in the last 10 games of the year. Uh, I don't know how many total. The Mariners have, uh, I believe, 10 remaining AL West games. So they'd have to do pretty damn poorly to lose okay. that tiebreaker. Uh, they do need to go at least 6-1 and one in their seven remaining games against Texas to get the tiebreaker, but have already clinched the tiebreaker with Houston. There we go. And also, if they go 6-1 and one against Texas, they're probably not, probably not worried about a tiebreaker. <laughs> uh, it's really those three teams for two spots. The Mariners and the Rangers both at about 70% playoff odds, according to fan graphs. The Blue Jays Isn't it those, two, those teams for—you're not counting the, the Astros? It's the Again, Astros, the Rangers. Fan graphs, it's really three teams for two spots. Fan graphs can... I believe the Astros have a much easier schedule the rest of the way as well. Maybe maybe that's it. Although, again, part of that was probably playing the A's. And uh, they have not done so hot in that particular series yet. I am not willing to write off to just say that the Astros are in. It is four teams for three spots. I mean, their playoff odds are 96%. That can change very quickly. I suppose it can. The Mariners' odds were over 80% for a long period of time. Anything else on the Mariners? It was just, it was a brutal weekend, and it was one of those things where... It was a really frustrating Saturday, Friday and Saturday, because they had opportunities to win both of those games. And I, I thought that they were going to win at various different times. But the, this is why that piece, this is why Fangraphs has the... I understand it. Like, that's why the Astros are, if they have an easier schedule, at 96%. Because playing a team like the Rays... The Rays are relentless when you play them. They are probably the team that I would want to see the least in the playoffs of anybody of anybody in the American League. I stand by my take that my continual take on this podcast that they are the best team in the American League, excluding nobody. Although the Astros, 
The Astros put up some pretty impressive stats against the Rangers. Turns out when Kyle series. Tucker is uh, playing that they're a little bit more dangerous, but then losing two in a row to the A's. So Somehow the Rangers still second in run differential at plus 151. Tampa Bay 197 lapping the field. And the Rangers seem like they're playing quite a bit better these days uh, with a couple of wins against the Blue Jays. But, I mean, they kind of just have to win every single game against bad teams from here on out. Every single game matters, and you know if if they can win two of three against the Dodgers, that would be huge. But they have to beat the Angels, and they have to beat the A's. This isn't a baseball situation where you can just win series. That is out now. You have to win every single game in this run up to the playoffs, especially if they're trying to win the AL West. Yes, that in particular. But I at agree. the same time, the the way that the Mariners have hit in particular. There have been some moments where they were down, but been generally pretty opportunistic. Similar to what I was talking about, about missing the, getting the opportunity and then blowing it immediately after. Like, I feel like they can win every single game irrelevant of who they're playing. And yeah. it's a nice place to be for the Mariners. I'm not sure if that was the case last year. They just need to kind of put all of the pieces together at the right time, which they did do during their long winning streak or multiple winning streaks in a row. They just have to have a line, the hitting and the pitching and the bullpen. And I, I think it's one of those things that we've seen can happen. So if they can get hot during the stretch, I still am not writing off the AL West, given the roster. I think this roster is strong enough that they can win the AL West. And you shouldn't write it off. I mean, Fangraphs gives them a 20% chance to win the division. Like the Astros are the clear favorites, but their they're 96% of playoff odds are mostly because you know they have some margin for error to drop off and still be one of the wild cards. Every baseball team at this, at this part of the season is one four game winning streak or one four game losing streak away from their playoff odds. Wildly changing. Not the A's. All right, let's it, wrap it, up in of those teams who are in the mix with Utah football, which got a 43 to 10 win Saturday against Tulsa narrowly failing to cover the spread in that one. It was weird because the, like, Baby Fantasy Genius was with us at the game and was complaining how bad this, the Huskies were. And, like, objectively, they weren't. But it was kind of a a disappointing performance because, you know, to the extent that the Huskies didn't score, it was more because it felt like they stopped themselves rather than Tulsa stopped them. Even though I think Tulsa had a much better game plan in this one to take away the explosive play, plays more than Boise State did all, at the expense of you know having a lot more success with the east-west stuff, particularly wide receiver runs in this game. Do you have do you have no thoughts on this? Uh, I was reading ahead in the notes. Oh, okay. I I was not. Uh, I was not listening to what you were saying. The game on Saturday it was sloppy. It was a little sloppy. It was fine. I think the Huskies played really well. They played well. I mean, you had. Uh, a key drop by Jalen McMillan on what would have been a touchdown, followed by a fumble that helped keep things relatively close at halftime. Uh, I was not not impressed with a couple of penalties by Mikel Estine, who was out there at safety with Asa Turner leaving early in that one. Uh, still TBD on his status for this weekend among a handful of injuries. Uh, obviously the run game continuing to struggle has gotten a lot of focus. Dylan Johnson did not play in this one. Will Nixon got the start. Uh, continued to be, I think, the most effective of the UW running backs. Sam Adams the second got a lot more opportunity in this one. Uh, a high percentage of his carries this season have gone for negative yardage, 
which is not ideal. We also saw a little of Danielle Nagata, the uh, Arizona State transfer. Still not seeing Richard Newton on an offensive play. Interesting. Even though he's been on kickoff return team. So he's hypothetically healthy, but... I guess so. Maybe still coming back from injury. Yeah. I'm not terribly concerned with that. Like, there's a, like obviously, at some point, you are going to need to be able to run the ball to close out games and things of that nature. But, you know, the idea that they need to have balance, like, have you not watched college football before? Like, have you not seen air raid teams? Who is talking about this? Who are you talking to? Well, there's... There was, there was a headline in the Seattle Times. Was there? That posed this question. I saw the Seattle Times straight up. The but, things are so bad for the Seahawks. They're doing let's remember some years. <laughs> are they? I didn't see that. I was. I almost tried to work it into the take, but I was like, damn, Seattle Times. I know that we invented remembering things that happened in the past. No. And they were just like, week by week, we're going to remember this team. And it's just like. Wait, which team? The Super Bowl winning team since it's been a decade. Uh, But I was like, wow, things aren't that bleak for the Seahawks (laughs) after week one, but okay, Seattle Times. Wait, is this our our anniversary pod? Oh, it completely (laughs) blanked. This This is our 10th anniversary pod today. (laughs) We'd love to celebrate that an hour and 12 minutes into the pod. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers to 10 years. We're going to talk about some really fun stuff coming up here with Michigan State. Oh, my God. Wow. wow, that was not... When was our original episode? <laughs> I need to put this in the, the rundown that it's at the hour and 12 minute mark that we remember that it is our 10th anniversary podcast. We were so upset celebrating our 10, <laughs> 10 year anniversary. Okay, hold on here. We going back. Who won that Coors Light debate poll back in September? Uh, the inaugural Fabulous Pelton cast was posted on September 12th, 2020. Wow, it is exactly a decade? It is exactly 10 years. Where we talked about the Huskies were playing at Illinois that year. Wow. Also a Big oh, Ten Big opponent. Ten matchup. Yeah. I barely remember that game. I think we kind of crushed Illinois. The Yes. The uh, segments included tailgating and fantasy football. Uh, there was no roundup. You don't want to talk about fantasy football this week, do you? Uh, I, I lost to a six-year-old. <laughs> you definitely lost to baby as Convincingly. How did that one feel? destroyed by baby as fantasy genius. How did that one feel? Uh, I want to tell you, after 10 years, you've aged. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Anyway, I'll always remember the episode. The one good episode. <laughs> Which one was that? I can't remember. After the Super Bowl? <laughs> no. Definitely not after the Super Bowl. After well, the NFC Championship game, actually. What a great 10 years it was. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, it's improved the audio quality. That's true. For some of it. Definitely. We're going to do way more for Randy going to taco times than us doing 10 years of podcasts. But, you know. It's all fair. Uh who would have thought 10 years ago that we would be the co-hosts of Keeping It 150 Costco Pod? <laughs> we never really imagined it. What, what the hell were we talking about beforehand? Uh, well, I think we were just about to talk about Michigan State to celebrate let's, 10 years. Let's keep finishing the uh, UW footballs last week. Okay. Anyways. Oh, the Seattle Times, remembering some years, the mm-hmm. Seahawks 2013 Super Bowl season. You should remember some Pelton cast. That's what we should do is go go back and re-listen to episodes one at a time, one <laughs> per week, and then talk about those old episodes. I believe we've already said that's going to be Jiffer's podcast. <laughs> Reviewing, please do not listen to any early episodes of the Pelton cast. Cannot, cannot recommend it. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I think it's good. Like the Seahawks, the, Hus- Seahawks. the Huskies are only 
clearly good at one of kind of the, you know, if you want to say pass offense, pass defense, run offense, run defense, they're clearly only clearly good in one of those four things. Fortunately, pass offense is by far the most important. They're good in the one that matters. And I think the pass defense, I mean, we don't know about the defense, really. Tulsa, who knows what test it was. Uh, Cardell Williams, who had played so well in week one, was not effective before leaving the game. Uh, I will say that there were two weeks in a row that we talked about quarterbacks who had been good. I mean, you talked about you were kind of scared of Boise State's quarterback, right? And he he looked terrible in that game, right? I would go that far. I would definitely not go that far. Definitely didn't look good. And UW definitely neutralized him as a runner. I actually think after two weeks, I think we can confidently say the UW defense is improved. I mean, with Jabbar Muhammad looks very reliable as a cornerback, which is one more reliable cornerback than they had last season. Uh, and, you know, we'll see about what happens with Davon Banks, who did end up getting the start last week instead of uh, Alleged Jackson at that other spot. Seahawks, the Seahawks, I don't know why I keep calling them, the, the, because they're in the last segment here. The Huskers are 44th. It's been 10 years of podcasting. Defensive. Older. <laughs> well, I'm losing my memory. Huskies 44th in defensive FPI efficiencies thus far. They imp- finished 63rd last yeah, year, so that would be an improvement. Where are they offensively? Uh, I believe they are 5th. Okay. They finished 6th last year. They are 4th. There we go. Yeah. They're very good at the offense. Again, despite not running the football. It's uh, almost John, like it doesn't matter. John Donovan in shambles. Yeah. What are John Donovan's up to these days? <laughs> Offensive coordinator for the Seahawks. <laughs> Did you know they didn't run any play action? <laughs> Penix fourth in QBR thus far, by by the way, which is much better. You'll recall last year's QBR was kind of uh, even as, as good as, as he was. John Donovan. Where is John Donovan? Senior offensive analyst for the Florida Gators. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Happy belated birthday. Yes, he is. Happy belated birthday to John Donovan, who celebrated his 49th birthday on Monday. (laughs) Oh, Lord. All right. Well, Saturday, the Huskies faced their first Power 5 opponent of the season, a future Big Ten rival in Michigan State. And this is a game that suddenly is overshadowed by news about Michigan State's football team off the field. On Saturday, USA Today reported that Brenda Tracy, a survivor of a gang rape involving members of the Oregon State football team who subsequently founded the nonprofit, set the expectation to educate players and encourage them to join the fight against sexual and interpersonal violence, had filed a Title IX complaint against Tucker, uh, Michigan State head coach Mel Tucker. Tracy speaks regularly to teams around the country, including multiple visits to Michigan State since Tucker became head coach. She alleged in the complaint that during a routine phone call that took place while Tucker was traveling on university business, he masturbated without her consent. In his statement to Title IX investigators, Tucker acknowledged masturbating but said that they had consensual phone sex. Corroborating evidence, although not definitive, supports Tracy's version of events and not Tucker's. A formal hearing on the Title IX uh, allegation was scheduled for October 5th through 6th, but Tucker remained the acting head coach until he was suspended without pay on Sunday after the story became public. MSU interim president Teresa Woodruff said at the time, this step suspending Mel Tucker without pay is necessary and appropriate for today's circumstances. These actions are not taken lightly. 
Uh, secondary coach Harlan Bennett was named the acting head coach for Michigan State, while former Spartans head coach Mark D'Antonio came out of retirement to serve as associate coach. And, you know, obviously the football part of this is not the important part. That's, you know, what happened to a rape survivor. Uh, it's alleged to have happened to a rape survivor here. But the line of UW at Michigan State opened at Huskies minus 11 and a half before jumping to minus 16 on Saturday. So, like, that is a substantial swing uh, in, you know, based off of this news and the fact that Mel Tucker will not be on the sidelines on Saturday and just kind of this chaos for the Michigan State program heading into the game. Yeah, I mean, a shocking story and a shocking situation to have happened. Uh, but obviously, UW needs to play a football game against Michigan State and uh, a team that they beat last year at home. And curious how that situation is going to be different, how that team looks this year, a year later in Michigan State, which looks very different than they did when they came into UW as a top 10 ranked team. Uh, now I think the expectations for Michigan State obviously very different and in seeing that initial line of minus 11 as the home team. Yeah, with that 39-28 loss at Husky Stadium, presaged down season for the Spartans, who lost four in a row, starting with that one, finished 5-7. and seven. Aside from a 2-5 and five record in Tucker's first year as head coach, which was shortened by COVID, the first year without a bowl appearance for Michigan State since 2016. Sandwiched in between was the 11-2 season that earned Tucker a 10-year, $95 million contract that is you know, obviously in jeopardy with this, this Title IX hearing. Uh, Michigan State was off to a 2-0 start with wins over Central Michigan and FCS School Richmond, both at home. Quarterback Peyton Thorne, who played pretty well in that game at UW, transferred to Auburn, was replaced by backup Noah Kim, who had 19 career pass attempts in three years entering this season. Kim has thrown for 571 yards and five touchdowns in the first two games with 10.8 yards per attempt. But after accounting for opposition, QBR has him eighth in the Big Ten with a weaker rating than Thorne had last year. UConn transfer Nate Carter has 224 yards, four touchdowns on the ground at 6.1 yards per attempt. It's a balanced receiving attack for Michigan State with three players over 100 yards, nobody with more than 135, which is kind of an off game for uh, Roma Dunce and Jalen McMillan. Uh, defense was the big weakness for Michigan State last year. They ranked 80th in FPI efficiency after finishing 21st in 2021 when they had that 11-2 and season. So far, 39th. They have 10 sacks through two games, including seven against Richmond. But they had 12 through their first two games last year and did not sack Michael Penix Jr., who you know, was sacked so rarely last season as they uh, kind of got torched by the UW defense in that one. And I think this is a Michigan State team that hasn't been particularly tested on the field that much this season, uh, especially in the same way. Obviously, UW hasn't played outside of home either, but a much more difficult game against Boise State in the opening match and even probably Tulsa as well. Um, so uh, they, they've definitely played some stronger opponents. They're a better team. They were a better team last year. Uh, and a yeah, team Tulsa that, does rate uh, seven spots better than Central Michigan. They're pretty similar. A, a team that... that also, you know, you look at the Texas victory against Alabama that happened. The team that is relatively similar to the team that they played in the bowl game, right? They didn't have Bijan Robinson, but they didn't also this last weekend. You have to say... They never Sean Johnson, I think. <laughs> really? I didn't even know where Sean Johnson went to Texas. Yeah, he was Bijan Robinson's back. That's where I learned about him. And he didn't play in that game either. He also they were on that third game. Okay. Okay. Uh, 
touchdown in week one for Rashawn Johnson. But this UW football team has been playing pretty well for a pretty long period of time right now. And, you know, it's been since they went into the desert. Tough game against UCLA. Went into the desert last year since they've, you so, know, they've been tested. So have you seen this storyline? What is that? UW football on grass. I'm not sure that I really buy it. Uh, they are. Christian Cable did the math against the spread three and three and nine against the spread four and eight straight up in their last twelve games on grass. And this is under Michael Penix or no or un, under Kalen DeBoer. This, this is going back general. to the Chris Peterson era. Five and nine overall, four and ten against the spread. I should say. I feel like this is one of where is their grass in the Pac-12 so this is the thing that I think is worth noting is there's a potential confounding variable here which is it turns out you don't put grass in places where it's cold generally speaking uh-huh. Michigan State being an exception to this uh, it's UCLA mm-hmm. Arizona State Stanford uh, all, USC uh, obviously then a number of bowl games basically the Pac-12 South yeah but not Arizona, notably, where they have also struggled at times on the road uh, and has similar heat is the confounding variable. Uh, also, the many of their bowl games uh, have been played. Obviously, the Rose Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl against Penn State. Colorado is the other team in the Pac-12 that has a grass field. They lost their last two there, but previously had a couple of blowout wins at Colorado. Causation is not necessarily correlation. Uh, that's, that's the opposite. Correlation is not necessarily causation. Yes. There we go. Yeah. And usually I'm the one delivering that phrase on the podcast. This this is something where these are these are numbers, but I am not concerned about this whatsoever. I yeah, I don't think it's a big I don't issue. think I mean, this, it was, the Huskies it, are not gonna lose the game and we're gonna be like grass. You know what I mean? Like it is amusing to know that the Huskies need to touch grass. The so you said Arizona doesn't? Yes, they have a turf field. So they played, they lost one game last year on grass. No, Arizona State does have grass. So both of the games they lost last year. Oh, I thought they lost to Arizona grass. last year. That was Arizona State they lost to? It's a, it's a sunny Saturday in Tempe, not in Tucson. Okay. Get that straight. The offense still looked pretty good in those games. It's This is correct. I don't, I, I don't, I don't buy it. Maybe the defense is too used to being too fast on turf. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't really know the like the the causal explanation here we're going a little deep there no I'm, I'm not paying attention to this grass and turf is the big story of the week though uh with aaron Rodgers' achilles injury being attributed to metlife stadium's turf field and nfl players desire to outlaw basically outlaw turf because the injury incidence is higher on turf than on grass in, in, in there's also an interesting post. Sounder at heart had this that uh, the Seahawks and St. Lumen Field is due to have its field replaced after this season. They made the case that they should put in grass now because of the fact that they are going to need to have it in for the 2026 World Cup. So, Sounder at heart made the case so yeah. they, after the season they are going to go to grass. Uh, they will have to have it for the 2026 World Cup. We'll have to have it at least temporarily for the 2024 Copa America to be played in the U.S. And the Seahawks are fine with converting to grass. Pete Carroll said it's worth more study. So, <laughs> Pete Carroll might do some independent study oh, that we're okay. not, not oh, sure okay. about. Pete Carroll's studying isn't great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's keep Pete Carroll off the internet. <laughs> Just do whatever we can. Uh, <laughs> As we studied the fourth down research. 
I think it's also football, and it's a very dangerous sport. I don't, I don't know. I think it's very difficult to attribute an individual injury. My, my one concern about some of the studies, and this goes to what we were just saying, is like if you're comparing grass fields to turf fields, it's not like those are randomly distributed. You know, you don't have like, well, let's put a turf field here, and you know, we flip a coin and decide whether to put a turf field in or a grass field. You put grass fields where it's best to grow grass, and you put turf where it's more difficult to keep grass. Yeah. So therefore. You know, the fact that a grass field is safer in Los Angeles doesn't necessarily mean that a grass field is going to be safer in December in Seattle when do it's you, all torn up. Do injuries up in the occur rain. more often in cold environments than in warm environments? I don't know anything data on that one, but I will say, like you know, the evidence generally, like grass is grass is preferred for a reason. Okay. I, I will also say the grass that. is greener. <laughs> yes, there you go. We've come to that conclusion on this podcast, anyways. Back to UW and Michigan State. I think UW is a very good team. That's it. I think UW is a very good team that has looked very good for many games in a row against pretty difficult opponents along the way. And I will feel confident. Also worth noting, didn't win a lot of games on the artificial turf of Otson Stadium for a long period of time. Weird. I, I I am unconcerned with the grass. And I think that UW should win this game. I think the spread is a little bit high. I think it this, seems a little bit high. I also thought that about the Boise State game, so take that for what it's worth. But they worth. didn't cover in the Tulsa game. I think it's like a 75% chance. I mean, the Tulsa game, they ended up missing because of the fact that they kicked a field goal that went off the upright and, and out. Part of the sloppiness and, and the special teams issue for them. But I think it's about a 75% chance of victory. That sounds about right to me. We're agreeing. Yeah. But I mean, a 16-point favorite would imply probably a much higher percentage. Yes, and FBI only has it at 66%. So Okay. I mean, this is a test, obviously, for UW. Uh, early on, I think it's important that they do have these tests and play these big games, and I think they will have played two of them before conference play. So they'll, they'll be set up in a good position uh, going into conference play. They will have experienced this one at home, one on the road, against very, very good teams. And you know, no matter what happens, I think that they will be in uh, they'll be very prepared for an extraordinarily difficult Pac-12 schedule. By the way, Boise lost at home to UCF 18-16 last Saturday. I don't know how good UCF is at this point. I have really no no context for that. So, but uh, certainly the uh, Boise State has dropped below substantially below Michigan State in FPI. UCF is very good though. They're 31st, so they are actually better than either of the two teams UW has faced. So. Well, it's been a good 10 years. <laughs> Here we are at the end, learning that it's our 10-year anniversary. Yeah. Uh, you probably haven't listened for the full 10 years. You definitely haven't listened for the full 10 years. As there was a large period of time where we were not releasing podcasts during that. But uh, I miss those years. Those were actually my favorite of the 10 years. <laughs> for the portions of the 10 years that you've listened to, we thank you for doing so. Thanks. <laughs>